0: Hi. Thanks for joining us. You're listening to Tell It From Calvary, a ministry of Calvary Baptist Church, New York City, with the goal of engaging the city and impacting the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today's message is from our senior pastor, Dr. Abraham Joseph. If you want to know more about Calvary Baptist Church and its ministries, head over to www.cbcnyc.org. Let's go to God in prayer uh, as we continue to worship him. Please join with me. Our Father and our God, we join the angels and all creation in praising you this morning. For you alone are God, and you alone created all things. Uh, What a privilege to know that we exist for your glory, for you made us for that purpose. When we sinned and rebelled against you, you did not abandon us to destruction, but redeemed us by the death and resurrection of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. You have sent your Holy Spirit to dwell in us, to transform us into the image of your Son, so that we may be fully restored to your image in which we were created. We eagerly wait and long for the day when our salvation will be complete, and we, along with all renewed creation, will sing those beautiful songs, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Father, while we await that day, we confess that we continue to sin. We have not reckoned ourselves as dead to sin and alive to you in the newness of life that is ours in Christ Jesus. We live as though your word that sin shall have no dominion over us is not true. We live as though your grace is licensed to sin instead of your provision to train us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. All our sins are rooted in our failure to love you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love one another as we love ourselves. We confess our lies, lust, unkindness, pride, arrogance, selfishness, gossip, conceit, covetousness, and anger. We have failed to forgive others and have not been thankful for all your good gifts you give us daily. Instead, we complain, worry, and become anxious as though we don't belong to you or that you don't care for us. Please forgive us for the sake of your Son who is the propitiation for all our sin and according to your promise to forgive us of all sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness if we confess them to you. Help us by your Spirit to live pure and godly lives that glorify you by bearing witness to our Savior. Father, thank you for the privilege you granted us to approach your throne of grace in bold confidence because of Jesus our advocate who intercedes for us. Thank you that even in this fallen world, there is too much that is good because of your grace. Open our eyes to see what is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, and excellent, so that our lives may be filled with thanksgiving and not anxiety, worry, fear, and all that robs us of peace. Meanwhile, we bring before you the needs of this world, our nation, and our city, You alone can end the war in Ukraine that is devastating that nation and causing hardships around the world and drawing other nations into the conflict. We pray for relief and comfort for the victims of the devastating fire that took so many lives and destroyed Lahaina in in Maui. We pray for your mercy for our nation with the growing chaos at our borders that we now see in our streets with migrants pouring in and the city running out of resources to care for them. We pray for the federal government to act responsibly in immigration and border control. We pray for provision for our city and others to manage the crisis that we have inherited in ways that maintain law and order but also treat migrants with dignity as those who are created in your image. We pray for the church at large and for Calvary. Help us to be faithful to our calling to be salt and light to the world. Help us to be fully yielded to your spirit that he may form us in Christ. And our lives together and individually will give the world a glimpse of your kingdom that will come in its fullness when Jesus returns. Help us to live wisely among those who are not believers and make the most of every opportunity to be witnesses of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We pray for the needs of our body. If it's your will, would you please provide for us an alternate space that facilitates ministry around the week. Please heal the sick and suffering among us. Thank you for knees, biopsy, uh, being negative for cancer. We pray for full recovery from surgery for Teresa. What's impossible for us is not impossible for you, so please raise up Emerson and Bethann Moles and Laura Rodriguez according to your will and for your glory. We pray for safety and resolution uh, for those who have difficult home situations. Have mercy on us, be gracious to us, bless us, and make your face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth and your saving power among all nations. For we ask in the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray by saying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. morning again. Good morning. Thank you, Brother Ed Merald, for leading us in worship through song. I love that hymn, All Hail, the Power of Jesus' Name. Uh, that's the seminary hymn for Dallas Seminary, but we sing it in the diadem version, but it's so good. Uh, let's go to God in prayer before we look to His Word. Our Father and our God, uh, as we just uh, as just Ed Merald sang, You are. Our God is. Uh, We thank you, Father, that you are the everlasting, eternal God, the one who is always uh, in existence, the one who has done all things according to your goodwill and pleasure, and all of time and history unfolds according to your goodwill and purpose. You are sovereign over all things, and we can rest in comfort and peace knowing that you are in charge. And God, because you are sovereign and because you are Lord of all, you are Lord over us, and you have called us to be a certain kind of people in this world, and you equipped us for that through your spirit and your word. So this morning, Father, as we look to your word, I pray that you would instruct us from your word that we may be formed in Christ to be his disciples, to be his witnesses in this world, in our life and in our words. I thank you that you're able to do this, for this is according to your goodwill, for your glory and as witness to the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. So this uh, we continue on in this uh, series for the summer called a summer of psalms and if you know this see the subtitle it's a few of our favorites the hour are your pastors uh so you saw a few of my favorites psalm 16 psalm 20 uh, psalm 23 last week and today we're going to look at psalm 11 next week uh, pastor tim will preach from psalm 96 and the week after god willing pastor jim from psalm 1 and lord willing after that psalm 67 next week i won't be here we are taking our son andrew to college in nashville Appreciate your prayers. Uh, Our elder Billy Boyd tells me that I will cry when I drop him off. And uh, um, John Bacon agreed as well. So I don't mind crying if I have to. uh, But I do pray that uh, he will grow in his faith and his obedience to the Lord. Um, So this morning, um, we are looking at Psalm 11. Um, I guess I have to turn this on. Psalm 11, Uh, Psalm 11 is uh, one of my favorites because it's one of the first psalms that I worked on in seminary where uh, uh, it was a a formal study of the psalm and it's remained a favorite since then and uh, I have uh, seen it to be relevant, uh, to be a relevant text in just about every context in which I've lived in, in India, in in the Philippines and now in Richmond Hill, Queens where I moved to, where I saw some heavy police action last week. in all of this, Psalm 11 is, is a comfort. It asks and answers that age-old question: "What are we to do when the foundations are destroyed?" Do you remember a time when you thought social order, as you knew it, was about to collapse? When was that? World War. Second World War. World War. Yeah. Nothing more recent comes to mind? <laughs> January 6th. Something else I heard? Housing collapse, banking collapse. Nobody said COVID yet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um. <laughs> what are some threats to social order today? Gun violence, artificial intelligence, a friend or a foe, yet to be determined, right? Autocratic rule. Yeah, the world hasn't changed. and It's been on the verge of collapse right from the garden, from governments to economies to banks and uh, uh, Personal lives are all seem to be on the verge of collapse. There are threats to life as we uh, know it, uh, where it will change the way we live. Uh, But the more important question is how should we respond to these threats as Christians? Prayer. Standing Standing on the word. Trusting that God is in control. Yeah, Christians over the millennia have responded in one of three ways. Uh, Flight, get out of here, fight, or stand firm and take refuge in the Lord. Well, what do these stances mean and which one should we take? Let's look to Psalm 11 for our answers. Psalm 1 and 2 tell us that, uh, uh, that, that there is a blessed way of life. Uh, That is to delight in the ways of the Lord, the laws of God, and and to be zealous in keeping them. Uh, Psalm 2 tells us that God is on the throne and his good king will rule the world. But that world immediately seems to change by the time to come to Psalm 3 and beyond, where we see a different world, where there's a world that is plunged in evil and violence, where... The, the wicked seem to be in, in uh, to rule the day, and people opposed to God enjoy power and influence. Uh, that was the world in which David lived, the one who wrote the psalm, and that's our world today. How should David respond? How should we respond? Psalm 11 is a confession of trust in Yahweh when faced with imminent danger that threatens to undo life as the psalmist knew it. Uh, David, the psalmist, chooses to act not according to the counsel that was given to him. But according to what is right, considering who God is and what God does, we as the people of God do well to learn from David on how we ought to live when faced with crisis of different kinds. So turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 11. We look at it in four parts. First, the confession of trust. To the choir master of David, "In the Lord, in Yahweh, I take refuge." Uh, as we said, been saying, the superscription is part of scripture, to the choir master of David. Uh, The psalm is attributed to David, and if you know the story of David from uh, the historical uh, books, there are many times in the life of David that could have occasioned this psalm. Uh, He faced many dangers and opponents in his time. He fled from Saul's murderous intents toward him. Uh, He even fled from his son Absalom, who who attempted to usurp his throne. The psalm, however, doesn't state the specific event that occasioned this writing, it's better for us that the occasion is not stated, since then, then it makes the psalm relevant for any crisis, uh, any occasion of crisis. So like Psalm 23, this too is a psalm written during the time of crisis. Uh, however, while Psalm 23 focused on God's provision and God's protection, this psalm emphasizes why, why one ought to find refuge in Yahweh in times of crisis. Uh, psalm does not address God directly, it's not a prayer. It's uh, rather a testimony of the psalmist. He considers the counsel that is given to him and he chooses a course of action that is in accordance with his faith. Uh, It's a confessional monologue uh, of of, of faith in the faithfulness of Yahweh who always acts according to his character. In the Lord I take refuge. So even before the crisis is described or presented uh, and the counsel is offered the psalmist already reveals the course of action he has taken. Uh, The opening statement is the confession of faith and a rebuke of those whose counsel is about to reject. Psalm 2 opens with the name of God who had entered into covenant relationship with Israel and in the case of David, the one who had chosen him to be the king over his people. In Yahweh I take refuge. Uh, This is a habitual practice of David. Uh, As we know from the, the narrative of his life, he sought refuge in Yahweh when he was a shepherd tending to his sheep. As the anointed king uh, waiting for the throne and with uh, Saul in hot pursuit, he sought refuge in Yahweh. When he ascended the throne of Israel, he faced numerous threats even from his own family and he sought refuge in Yahweh. So he had the proven knowledge that this only safe place, if you will, was in Yahweh. The covenant-keeping God of Israel and the creator of all things. So what is the threat and what is the counsel? We see that in the second part of verse 1 all the way to verse 3. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted the arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to to your mountain? So the occasion for David's confession of trust that in in Yahweh he has found refuge is found in the second half of verse 1. Unnamed people are counseling him to flee in light of this imminent threat that he was facing. The threat itself is not mentioned. Uh, There is speculation whether these people who are offering this counsel to David are friends or enemies. Well, they could be either. Friends sometimes mean well and have genuine concern but can give the wrong counsel. Like Job's friends. Job had to tell them, "You will be considered wise if you keep your mouth shut." I mean, that's a rebuke. Throw, throw in shade there, Job, uh, or Peter, where uh, the Lord rebukes him, where uh, as one who is a dear friend would not would want wants to keep the Lord from his mission. But the words here, "Why do you say to my soul?" Uh, suggests that this, this could even be enemies because they're trying to sow seeds of fear. Uh, in the inmost uh, being of David and and seeking to undermine his confidence, his his faith. Well, we'll just call them frenemies because they could be either friends or enemies. Uh, But their counsel is dead wrong whether they are friends or enemies. The crisis may be real as we see in the next verse, but their counsel that David take off like a bird, like a bird that flies away from the hunter that is pursuing it and flies around a ridge of a mountain and disappears from the hunter's Sight is not the way that David ought to go. David has fled before from Saul, from Absalom. But whatever the crisis is, this present one, flight is not an option. So what is the threat? For uh, We only hear about it metaphorically. For behold, the wicked bend the bow. The bow. They have fitted their uh, arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. So the rest of the psalm contrasts or uh, concerns two groups of people And God's response to them. The righteous are upright in heart and the wicked. The righteous are not perfect people. There's only one who is perfect and that's our Lord Jesus Christ. But the righteous here are people who are in right relationship with God. They seek however imperfectly to walk in the ways of God. In the straight paths. They seek to do what is right before God and what is right before people. Therefore they are upright in heart. They follow the straight path. The wicked are not simply people who do wrong things, that would be us. But those who are violently opposed to God, his ways and his people. They are people who oppose the will of God. They are people who seek to establish their own ways, often by violent means and by oppressing God's people. They are rebellious people who will not have God rule over them and will inflict suffering on God's people in their affront toward God. The deeds of the wicked and the upright are not secret. They are seen and judged by God. The upright in heart are mentioned again in verse 7. Uh, these are the people who will see the face of God. These are all the righteous who are mentioned in verse 3. The wicked, on the other hand, as we will see, will face God's wrath. The threat is these opponents, the wicked, they lurk in the shadows. Last week we saw the valleys of the shadows of death. Uh, and that's, that's their sh- valleys of shadows of death because the wicked lurk there, uh, trying to, fire, uh, to shoot their arrows into the upright in heart. It's a terrifying situation. This is stuff of uh, sniper warfare. You don't know where the bullet is coming, or in this case, arrows. Violent death lurks in the shadows, and the counsel of the friends seems appropriate. But David knows and has chosen another course of action and that is indeed the right one. He has sought refuge in Yahweh and has chosen not to flee. He has already chosen his option, and it is not to flee. As one who has sought refuge in the Lord, it would be inappropriate for him to flee. For him to flee would be to abandon his calling, his civic responsibility, to abdicate the office to which God had called him, to give up on being king uh, as God had commissioned him to be. But notice he doesn't cancel his friends. He doesn't end the conversation with his frenemies even if he rejects their counsel. He continues to instruct them, to edify them as he faces uh, the, the central question of this psalm, If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? When the scriptures, especially the wisdom literature, speak of foundation, what is meant is the moral order in society. The institutions of public order that support a peaceful way of life were about to collapse or already have. The restraints against chaos and evil and disorder are broken. That's what anarchy looks like. Uh, Ryan experienced a little of that in the Union Square riot a few days ago. You should talk to him about that. Um, see, good laws are intended to protect people and uh, preserve life. And when they are being trashed, society is in the verge of collapse. This is a complete breakdown of law and order, and it's expressed in raw violence. And there's no recourse left for those who are subject, subjected to this oppression and violence of the wicked. Uh, the ways of the, the just and orderly society has, has collapsed. There is no one and nowhere to turn to uh, for safety, for protection. What are the righteous to do? The situation is impossible. David faced circumstances like this many a time. Our Lord faced such a threat. Uh, no wonder his frenemies counseled David to flee even as uh, Peter tried to silence our Lord when he revealed that his mission was to suffer and die at the hands of his enemies. Uh, we see the, the migrant crisis in our street And it looks like our society is about to collapse But what we forget is These people have fled from societies That have already collapsed What are the righteous to do? The question is a rhetorical one at this point Because David has already answered the question in verse 1 He will not flee True safety was found by taking refuge in Yahweh By standing firm in the way of righteousness Not by, fe- not by fleeing he will go on to explain his course of action. It has everything to do with who God is and what God does. His response is guided by the character of God and God's revealed ways in this world and for this world. We read in verses 11, uh, chapter, uh, verse, Psalm 11, verses 4 and 5, that he addresses not just the counselors, but the wicked also. Uh, if they think God is not paying attention to what they're doing, they have another thing coming. The Lord... Yahweh is in his holy temple. Yahweh's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord, Yahweh, tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. David has sought refuge in Yahweh and not fled to the mountains because of God's location, God's presence, God's values, God's actions. Uh, First, he speaks of God's presence in the temple and in the heavens. Uh, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. See, David's frenemies want him to look around and and feel the danger, feel the threat. But David chooses not to look around but to look up and see the Lord in his temple and on his throne. Uh, While the wicked are busily engaged in doing evil, the righteous are being uh, uh, counseled to frantic action, to flee. But God remains calm and in control. God's covenantal presence in the temple Is his imminent imminent presence with his people to care for them, to encourage them. God's governing presence in heaven is his transcendent presence as one who is sovereign over all people. He rules from the heavens. He governs over the righteous and the wicked alike. God's presence in heaven is often invoked in context of judgment in scripture as we see in Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 20. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth Keep silence before him. You know, some churches use this for a call to worship, but it's actually an announcement of judgment. Uh, in Micah 1:2, Hear you, peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth and all that is in it. And let the Lord be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. See, God's unchanging presence with his people in the temple, his sovereign presence in heaven cannot be overthrown By the wicked, try what they may. God's sovereign rule is not at risk at the hands of the wicked. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. That God is in the heaven does not mean he's aloof, uh, set off, absent, unconcerned about what's going on in the world or how people are conducting themselves in his universe. Even as David sees God in heaven and in his temple, God sees and observes and scrutinizes everything. Nothing is hidden before him Uh, He's not some absent deity of the deus who doesn't get involved in the affairs of the world. He watches over all that transpires. Nothing is hidden from his sight. No one escapes his scrutiny. His watchfulness is a moral watchfulness. The wicked would be wrong to presume that God does not see their evil or will not respond to their evil. Uh, We we see this uh, language in the the Genesis accounts uh, where God sees the evil of mankind. That the The evil of mankind was great. That's the only thing that's said of mankind that's great in the scriptures. And God sees and God acts in judgment with the flood. The same thing with the Tower of Babel. God sees and God acts in judgment. The same is true of God's concern for his people. As we see in in Exodus where the cry of his oppressed people come before him. And he acts to rescue them. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. God's scrutiny or observation is toward testing of people. The God who sees is also the God who tests. And he tests both the righteous and the wicked. That's a better translation. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. Because one's behavior, righteousness or wickedness, reveals uh, one's true nature, one's Uh, character one's belonging whether they belong to God or not or they oppose God and it is not lost on our all-knowing God the trust the test for the righteous is uh, is their response to times of crisis like this one will they continue to trust him or will they flee from him and seek refuge in something that will ultimately disappoint the word for testing here is the word that is used for testing the purity of uh, precious metals. God tests the righteous not to seek their failure, but as proof of their faith, even as Abraham was tested to confirm his faith and his obedience to God. It was not God who learned about Abraham who, uh, Abraham's faith, but Abraham who was confirmed in his faith through his testing. How do the righteous respond when they are tested in the fires of crisis? They trust themselves to the unchanging God who will not forsake them, who will not abandon them. It's, we learned that response from our Lord in 1 Peter 2:23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly, even if that meant going to the cross. Hebrews 12:2. Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He trusted in the God who is able to bring him through his, uh, through the cross to the promised end, resurrection. He found joy in his obedience to this God. The second part of verse uh, 5, But his soul hates the wicked. The one who loves violence uh, is better considered along with verse 6. So we read in verses 6 and 7, Yahweh, uh, who examines the righteous and the wicked, uh, he renders his verdict on both. His soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. God's verdict on the wicked, his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur and a scorching wind that shall be the portion of their cup. God's response to his scrutiny of the wicked is judgment. He is opposed by his own nature and his character to wickedness and violence. You see, it's good again to remind ourselves of who the wicked are. They're not just people who do wrong things or disagree with us. These are people opposed to the ways and will of God, and express their opposition to God through violent means. See, God's holiness, God's righteousness, God's justice requires that he oppose the wicked. We don't like the word hate associated with God, do we? So we say things like, God hates sin but loves the sinner, and there's truth to that. But that does not mean we can do away with the direct statements as this one, where God, God's opposition to the wicked is explicitly stated God hates the wicked. God in his soul hates the wicked, in his inner being. Those who love violence, those who oppose him and his people, uh, to be wicked, to be opposed to God is a dangerous way to live. Those who love violence inspire hate in God toward their actions. He does not take pleasure in evil. The wicked cannot dwell in his holy presence. That's what we heard read in Psalm 5. There's nothing explicitly said here about forgiveness being available to the wicked, but this very psalm, as a word of warning, is a call to repentance if one is continuing on in the way of wickedness, to turn to God and be spared of the judgment and brought into a right relationship with God. God's assessment of and his opposition to to the wicked results in judgment uh, using language that is reminiscent of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah we hear here that uh, even there God sees their wickedness uh, the wickedness of the inhabitants of those cities and and acts in judgment while preserving the lives of one uh, one righteous man and uh, Lot and his daughters judgment scorching winds that's the, the Sirocco of the Middle East that would blow through and wither up plants and dry up water sources this is the cup of God's wrath and that's what the wicked will drink That's what we ought to face as well, but thanks be to Jesus who drank that cup of wrath, we drink from the cup of salvation. But those who destroy the moral foundations of society are opposed to God's plan for his creation. The same is said about those who destroy the church by creating disunity, by their selfish ambition, or by teaching falsehood. But God has a different vi- uh, verdict for the righteous, for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. God responds to the righteous with favor. God res- God's response to the upright in heart also flows from his character, uh, even as his judgment against the wicked was according to his nature. God loves justice, God is righteous. He desires this world to be a place of moral order, of justice, of goodness and fairness. And he will ensure that it happens. Again, we need to be reminded who the righteous here are. These are not perfect people, but people who fear God and seek to follow his ways, even if they do so imperfectly. I heard a a preacher recently who contrasted Saul and David. Uh, See, David sinned terribly Uh, compared to Saul. We don't hear of Saul's adultery or murder, but David did. Adultery, murder, covetousness, broke three commandments at once. But what is it that made David righteous while Saul was counted among the wicked? See, David was righteous not because he didn't sin, but even when he sinned, he ran to God. He sought God. When Samuel confronted him about uh, his sin, Uh, not uh, Samuel, the prophet Nathan confronted him with his sin in a psalm, Uh, he doesn't seek to preserve his throne or his rule. He only seeks that the Lord will not take his spirit away from him. Saul, on the other hand, when confronted by Samuel about his disobedience, sought to preserve the trappings of his monarchy, not his relationship with God. So David is among the upright in heart, a righteous man, not because he never sinned, but because even when he sinned, he ran to God and did not run away from God. David seeks the only path that is left for the righteous, refuge in Yahweh. Even refuge from Yahweh is found only in refuge in Yahweh. So to take refuge in Yahweh means that he stands firm in the ways of God. He will stand firm and not abdicate or abandon his calling. He would instead instruct his mistaken counselors on who God is and what God does, a reminder both they and the wicked and we need. The psalm invites all who face Various kinds of crises to carefully consider the path that they would want, choose. To seek refuge in God or to flee to perceived safety that will ultimately fail. The wicked are destined for God's wrath, but the upright in heart will see the face of God. They will stand before God as his honored servants. We saw that in Psalm 23 where, where God prepares a banquet for his own and seats them at his table as honored guests. Those who take refuge in the Lord will find themselves welcome in God's presence, uh, all according to His loving kindness, as we saw in in Psalm 5 that was read to us. This is the promise of the New Testament as well. The Lord promises in His Beatitudes, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 1 Corinthians 13 tells the Apostle Paul, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. The Apostle John, 1 John 3, verses 2, 3, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. That's the hope of those who have sought refuge in Yahweh. Hell will not prevail against them. Wickedness may seem to rule the day, but ultimately will not prevail. And everyone the, song, uh, the uh, John writes, "Who has the soap purify himself, themselves?" So what are we to do? I'm assuming we are counted among the righteous. See, ultimately, this this psalm points to our Lord. He's the only one who's righteous in himself. He too faced the the greatest crisis of all time. Uh, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, God incarnate faced imminent and certain death and he sought refuge in his father. He was tempted by the devil and even a, a dear friend to abdicate his mission, to flee. He struggled in the garden knowing that the next day he would face the full wrath of God against the sin of all mankind. Yet he sought refuge in his father. He was confident of his father's presence with him. Even in his cry of dereliction, um, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, that, that cry of forsaken was, was forsakenness was quickly followed by a cry of trust. Father, in your hands I entrust my spirit. He did not abandon his mission. He persevered in his task for which he was sent. He trusted himself in the hands of his father and he was not put to shame. He was triumphant not by being spared of the crisis, but by drinking of that cup of wrath that God had appointed for him and being vindicated through that by his resurrection. He emerged triumphant through his absolute trust and obedience in the God in whom he sought refuge. See, uh, if he had fled from his mission, we would still be dead in our sins and his trespasses. All of us would have perished. You and I won't be here gathered for worship this morning. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, who sought refuge in his Father's will, in his Father's promise, in obedience to his Father, and he was vindicated. What about us? You know, We too face crises of all kinds. How do we respond? Uh, Before we consider our response, we ought to know who we are. Who are we numbered with this morning? The righteous or the wicked? I see here whispering of righteousness. See, ultimately the righteous are those who are such through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Those who are trusted in him for salvation have his righteousness imputed to us. We are clothed with His righteousness and we stand before God only by virtue of his righteousness. But those who have received that kind, precious, wonderful gift of God by which we stand before him, that we who are unrighteous are righteous before him. We will express that righteousness, that righteousness. Faith in the righteous one by seeking refuge in him and standing firm in our faith even when the world turns against us. This morning, if you are here and if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ, God's word says you are counted among the wicked and are destined for God's wrath. But the good news is the warning that this psalm calls us to, or it calls us to repentance. Repentance. So today if you acknowledge that you are a sinner and you are separated from God and if you turn to Christ who has taken away God's wrath against you by taking it upon himself on the cross that if you trust that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead on the third day you have God's promise that you are rescued from the destiny of wickedness and brought into the number of the righteous to be counted among his people to be among those who will see his face why wouldn't you want that? I invite you to trust in Jesus Christ today. If you're not sure where you stand, I would love to talk to you. Please come and see me after the service. We want to make sure that you follow after God and stand in his way. Now, if we are those in Christ Jesus, and I assume most of you are, having responded in Christ, to, in, to Christ in faith, how do we respond when we face societal threat, social disorder, persecution, cultural hostility, uh, the threats are of all kinds. There are universal threats, uh, uh, climate change, and uh, governmental collapses, and if you're living in certain countries, uh, military coups. Uh, all kinds of uh, uh, personal threats uh, to the way of life as we know it, life, loss of job, death of a loved one. Uh, in society at large, there's religious pluralism where many uh, religious beliefs compete in the marketplace, uh, there seems to be a wholesale rejection of all kinds of Christian values that were taken for granted. Uh, there is moral relativism. Is that new? No, th- that's the world into which the church was birthed, where paganism held offices of influences uh, of influence. A violent uh, and, and those who were in power violently persecuted Christians. Uh, that's still the reality in many nations today. To name the name of Christ is to sign your death warrant. The same is true of uh, all kinds of threats that we face uh, in a, at a personal level. Uh, or as a church, where we, fee- we, we face a diminished interest in the ways of God. Church attendance is low, at its lowest, all time, nationwide. Uh, and, and some Christians seem to abandon God's ways for the sake of uh, being progressive, we're told. It, all appear, it, it appears that all our, our efforts to de- are destined to fail. Uh, maybe we should just crawl under a stone and hide. What are the righteous to do? See, we, we ought to remember that we are righteous before God only by virtue of our union with Christ as God's people. Uh, uh, people have responded in one of three ways, flight, fight, or stand, but only one of them is right for God's people, uh, when it comes to flight, uh, there there are stories like that in scripture. Adam and Eve chose the path of flight when confronted with sin. They denied. Uh, They'd done anything wrong. Uh, or they accused each other. Or even God, the woman you gave me, she gave to me and I ate. Or, or, or the serpent did. It's blame shifting and it's cover up, literal cover up, inadequate cover up, but cover up nonetheless. Shame, guilt. Uh, Saul takes flight in anger and violence instead of, Confronting his own insecurities and sin. Jonah literally flees from God because he would rather flee than see God's enemies, God's, the enemies of God's people being spared only to turn against God's people and, and be violent toward them. Uh, Judah, toward the days uh, before the collapse of the southern kingdom, sought to flee through false piety. They launched temple renovation projects if we only can build the temple back again, God will have to protect us. Or the sacrificial system where they chose sacrifice over obedience. Even today, uh, Christians are uh, tempted to flee. And there are extreme forms of flight and there are everyday forms of flight. Uh, some people withdraw into communes. There are cults and sects that have emerged where they withdraw from mainland society and form their own little enclaves. And then there are the doomsday preppers. These are the people who raid the stores for toilet paper and, and stock up their basement and, and, and live by the principle, each man to himself. Uh, there are more run-of-the-mill, everyday kind of flight. There's, there's cultural isolation. Christians have withdrawn from a uh, public arena. They move away from uh, inner cities to the presumed safety of suburbia. Uh, we abandon public schools for uh, Christian schools and homeschooling. I speak as one whose children has gone through Christian schools, homeschooling, and public schools. We didn't do very well with homeschooling. Not because of the children, but because of the teachers. Uh, uh. See, I understand and even support the reasons uh, why some people would do such things, but the truth remains that when we withdraw from public schools, we are no longer engaging the culture, and we are isolating ourselves from a culture to which we need to be salt and light. One of the most tragic withdrawal has been in the word, from the world of arts and literature, where we now have our own Christian music and Christian movies and Christian fiction and so on. And the result is a twofold loss. Uh, our witness to these communities of artists and, and writers and our failure to engage with their works of significance in the world, uh, we, have, uh, we have withdrawn and found refuge in a Christian subculture that isolates us from the world at large and keeps us from obedience to our Lord and engaging the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel becomes a private matter rather than public truth. Public truth that is to be expressed in all that we do, all that we are, in our work, in in school, in the arts, in our eating, our drinking even. Uh, We we resort to a churchianity instead of a true gospel-centered faith where we see our faith as something we do when we gather together with people who believe like us on Sunday morning and uh, restrict it to the so-called spiritual realm, our prayer, our reading of scripture, and not life everywhere at all times as being God's people. Others go the opposite route. Instead of cultural isolation, they go into cultural assimilation, um, they've given up or they seek to reinterpret the teaching, clear teaching of Scripture even according to the spirit of the age. And we see that in the affirmation of sexual, sexual and gender deviance and, and confusion in some Christian circles. Uh, there's, there's a difference between welcoming those who are struggling in sin, which we ought to do, and affirming them in their sin. See, Sadly, there are Christians who have chosen to do the latter, all in the name of love and tolerance, uh, tolerance But the truth is we can't outlove God. His standards are based on his perfect love, not our changing spirit. The human flourishing is found in the ways of God, not in deviance from it. One last way, there are many more, of flight is by cover-up. It worked, or so Adam and Eve thought, just cover-up with some fig leaves. And we have all kinds of stories of church cover-ups, Southern Baptist Convention or the Hillsong or... Marshall churches uh, uh, where uh, there was failure to address uh, impropriety, sin in their midst and they acted as though all was well in their midst only to be exposed that they were just as corrupt as the culture that they were criticizing. Well, if f- flight is not an option, others choose to fight. In response uh, to the hostility of the culture, they choose to make war with the culture. They see the world as merely a place of danger and opposition and not a field for mission. Uh, this too takes extreme and everyday forms. Uh, some people resort to racial or ethnic supremacy uh, where the, the Christian faith is enmeshed into somebody's, uh, their, their ethnic identity and and, and They're not our kind of people and the results are disastrous. See, the gospel is for all people, for people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And to identify it with a particular ethnicity is disastrous and a falsification of the gospel. We hear about Christian nationalism, where people see societal dysfunction and they say, we need to return to another time of glorious days. Uh, And there's an idolatrous syncretization of one's national identity and Christian faith. And that's too, that too is a violation of the Lord's command to go to all nations. The Christian faith is not bound to any nation. There's actually no nation that can claim to be a Christian nation, really. See, we are people who belong to the kingdom of God. Our citizenship is in a different place. We live in these places as God's kingdom people, doing good and bringing a taste of God's kingdom presence which will come in its fullness when our Lord returns and all the kingdoms of the world will become the kingdom of God and His Son. Others resort to fight through political or judicial power. And that was Europe in the modern and late modern era, and the United States today, where the Christian faith and politics have become strange bedfellows. Christians have often sold their birthright of their witness for the sake of the porridge of political influence. As the motives were, are good. Uh, to preserve a Christian way of life for society at large is good. We want people loving one another. We want people doing good. But the means of doing that through political or judicial means are wrong because the Lord did not intend for life transformation to happen through legislation, but through the gospel and the transformation that it brings. Lives are changed through faith in Jesus Christ and the transforming work of the Holy Spirit and not through political influence. Do we want to see... Society change? There is a way we can see a change. We need to follow the way Jesus prescribed. Go make disciples. See, the result of uh, pursuing societal change through political means has meant the loss of our Christian witness where we are identified with this political party or that, but not with our sovereign Lord. So flight and fight are not options. so, So what do we do? We do what David did. We take stand. We stand firm and we take refuge in the Lord. To take refuge in the Lord does not mean passivity, or, or it means actual engagement of the hostile world and the crumbling society in which we live. We see that in Scripture when Abraham's world came crashing, crashing down, and that his, his beloved son, his only son, well, God asked him to be sacrificed. David, Abraham did not seek refuge by fleeing from God, but through faith and obedience in God that God was able to bring life. Even from death, and fulfill, because God will always fulfill His promise. David, when he was fleeing from Absalom, uh, and he was urged to take the Ark of the Covenant with him so that it would be a visible sign of God's presence with him, he refused and instead entrusted himself to God's will to be carried out in his life. Well, ultimately, it's our Lord in Gethsemane who entrusted himself to the Father's will and the Father's promise. Uh, and There are numerous examples in scripture, Joseph and Daniel in the Old Testament, Peter and Stephen and Paul and Epaphras in the New Testament. And uh, These are all examples of what it means to take refuge in the Lord in times of crisis. We too stand firm today by living in a manner worthy of the gospel, by self-giving love, by sacrificial obedience, by suffering for the sake of Christ and cultural engagement, all trusting God to accomplish his purposes even if the foundations are collapsing around us. A classmate and a friend of mine from seminary, Stephen Presley, uh, last week published an article with Desiring God uh, entitled uh, Believers in an Unbelieving World, How the Early Church Engaged Society. We've lived in a collapsing world of moral and societal disorder uh, the entire Christian era, at all time actually. Uh, And he provides helpful counsel on uh, how we can take a stand as believers in an increasingly hostile world. Uh, hostility is not new. It was in the world in which the early church emerged, thrived, flourished, and turned into a worldwide movement, all because it sought refuge in Yahweh. That didn't mean that they were passive. They did not withdraw from society, they did not become culture warriors. Instead, they went quietly around engaging the pagan culture that was theirs and saw it transformed by God through the power of the gospel, both proclaimed and lived. Our mission statement calls us to do the same work, to engage the city and impact the world, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we are faithful to this mission, we too can see our society transformed. That's the mission of all churches because that's the mission the Lord of our church has entrusted to us. Go into all the world, make disciples of all nations. Who are these disciples? These are people who obey everything that Jesus has commanded us to do. That's what transformed society will look like when people obey what Jesus has commanded us to do. And those who are Jesus' people are called to be disciples and make disciples. See, Presley claims that the key text for the early church for cultural engagement was 1 Peter 2, 15 to 17, uh, 16 to 17. For this is the will of God that uh, by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. See, notice the first instruction is to live free. This is not just freedom from the power of sin and, and death, but it includes freedom from societal pressure to, to flee or to fight. This freedom comes from fearing God. See, so the fear of God is not just the beginning of wisdom, it's the beginning of all things in relationship to God, including the mission to which he has called us, to stand firm in our uh, faith and, and content for the gospel. Those who fear God do not fear those who shoot arrows at us from the dark or the collapse of the foundation of social and moral order. See, fear of God, what is it? It's a firm conviction of who God is and his purposes for the world. We need to be grounded in sound doctrine, not just in knowing them, but living in light of who God is and what God has purposed for this world. This requires discipleship. Do we see our children, people who have been in the church a long time, deconstructing or walking away from their faith, is because they have not been discipled. So the first step in standing firm, taking refuge in Yahweh, is knowing who He is and living in light of that by being disciples and making disciples. When Christians stand firm in the teaching of Scripture, in sound doctrine concerning who God is and God's purposes, our conviction will be such that we will be willing even to face martyrdom for the sake of the faith as the early church did and thrived as a result of which you and I are here today. So stand firm as disciples of Jesus Christ. Second, we stand firm by honoring others, especially those who are not of faith. We are to honor everyone, including the, gover- the emperor, that is governing authorities. Honoring them means recognizing them as those who have been placed in positions of power and authority by God for the common good. God will hold them accountable for how they govern, for their actions. We obey such authorities unless obedience to them is a violation of God's commands. Then we obey God and face the consequence, come what may, and most of them will not be pleasant. But that is what it means to fear God and to live free. We don't try to riot or take over the government. We choose obedience to God over obedience to man when the two are in conflict. See, we are called to give a reason for the hope by in which we stand firm even when foundations are collapsing and we face all kinds of threat. We give reason for our hope, but we do so with gentleness and respect. Thirdly, we are called to be servants of God. That says we take the posture of a servant. That's the posture of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, remember Marxists is the gospel of the servant king. We are called to serve God by serving the world with the good news of Jesus Christ, both proclaimed and lived. The Christian movement spread because Christians were seen as those who valued others more than themselves. They served others, especially the least in society. They started soup kitchens, orphanages, hospitals, schools, all in obedience to the Lord's commands and in faithful witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the servant king who gave himself as a sacrifice for our sake. Finally, and most importantly, standing firm requires that we love the brotherhood. That's the family of faith. Our strength is in our unity, especially when we face threats and society societies collapsing around us. Our witness is in our unity. This is not a unity based on, you know, being nice to each other and having some tea and coffee together, but a unity that is forged in truth, unity that is forged in, in mutual forgiveness, in sacrificial love for one another, all modeled after our Lord, and in a manner worthy of the gospel. So we need to stand with each other if we are to stand firm in the faith and take refuge in Yahweh. It's not a solo effort. We do this together, especially when we are challenged by a hostile culture and and collapsing foundations of moral and social order. It's our love for one another that bears witness to our Lord, that we belong to Him. I'll close with the words of the Apostle Paul to the Philippians. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That's what it means to take refuge in Yahweh standing together striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Stand firm and take refuge in Yahweh, brothers and sisters. He will not disappoint you. Let's close in prayer. Our Father and our God, this word, this psalm is good news for us today as it was to David, as it was to the church, that we live in a world that is hostile to you, is, perse- is persecutes your people, but in the midst of this, we can't find refuge anywhere else. As Peter would say to the Lord, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where would we go? when we, If we remain with you, we will see your face. God, we want to see your face. Help us to stay faithful to you because you are always faithful to us. I pray that you would help us to walk in paths of righteousness and turn away from all that's wicked and evil and help us to be faithful witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ even to those who oppose us that they too may forsake their wicked ways and turn to the Lord Jesus and be saved. For we ask in his precious name. Thank you for listening to Tell It From Calvary. If you feel led to give toward the local, national, and global ministries of Calvary Baptist, please visit cbcnyc.org give or call us at 212-975-0170. We hope you join us next time as we continue to tell it from Calvary.